I'm here with uh, Mark Gibson, CEO of JLL Capital Markets Americas. Mark's a good friend and a great colleague, and he's invited here not because of those credentials, but rather because of his extensive knowledge of the capital markets and uh, up to the moment exposure to major players and their moves. Uh, this is a, a new installment in our uh, YouTube uh, discussion conversations with the best minds in real estate. And Mark, I want to welcome you uh, to our family of great minds in real estate. Thank you, Gary. I appreciate it. Although I hope I don't dilute that brand. Well, we'll find out. We'll talk about it in 60 minutes. Okay, good. <laughs> so first, Mark, there's a lot we want to talk about, but I do want to know a bit about how you are coping with uh, COVID personally uh, and uh, how uh, are you keeping, keeping both uh, healthy and fit in body and yeah. mind. Okay, well, you know, I'm one of these folks that uh, tend to look at things with a glass half full, Gary. Um, so um, there are a bunch of silver linings out of this uh, that I think we can all take away from, and all of us have them. That's how I choose to look at it. Uh, in terms of um, coping with it, I've had four family members that have had it, so I've actually been uh, uh, pretty, pretty involved, um, all very mild symptoms. Um, I do sit on two hospital boards, so I'm fairly informed about it. Um, and so with that knowledge a little bit, both personal and, and professional, uh, I've just decided to uh, get in the best shape I've ever been in. So I uh, wake up early in the morning and get a good workout in and walk late at night, uh, which helps me keep sane with all the calls and the video conferences that we're all doing, which is uh, the way I'm coping. Well, you look good, and I'm uh, whatever you're doing, keep doing, my friend. <laughs> well, I'm going to keep doing it. Yep. Good. Uh, before we jump in, you just made a comment about your exposure to uh, the medical community in the research area. Uh, I'm curious if you have any uh, personal take based on that information about how close are we to uh, broad-based testing capabilities in America and to uh, a treatment or even a vaccine. What, what's your assessment? Based on everything you know today, how soon and how broad will those two things be available in America? Yeah, Gotti, you know me well enough to know that if it's not my core competency, I'm not going to weigh in uh, too heavily here. So I would just encourage people to go to very reputable healthcare websites and get data versus off-cable news. Uh, the sensationalism that has been uh, uh, proliferate around this topic of pandemic is not helpful. So the data is coming out. Uh, it is very, uh, it is going to be better news. Um, and I would just encourage you to uh, watch it vis-a-vis -vis the hard data that comes through the healthcare systems. And there are a couple of very interesting studies that have been done by some unique universities, some of the elite universities in the U.S., including Yale and Stanford, that are coming out with uh, a very different perspective than uh, some of us have uh, seen in the past. And I think the industrial universe is beginning to look at the hard data uh, and beginning to process some interesting outcomes themselves. So I would just leave it at that. Uh, if, if you want a personal opinion, welcome to give me a call. Yeah, okay, well, well, I will because I am interested in your personal opinion. I think everybody, I talk to is informed, is connected, and has uh, access to information that is beyond what you read in the headlines or even if you read more deeply into the data. And uh, uh, I, I think that there's a lot more, maybe not quite as reliable information out there, but there's a lot more information that's useful uh, in sort of building your business case because this conversation is about building uh, understanding and knowledge about what you, I, other players in the industry are thinking, uh, experiencing as a way for our audience to build their strategies and their uh, plans. People ask me all the time the questions I'm going to ask you about um, what to expect and how to plan for it and what, what is, you know, in, in the world of uh, plan for the worst and expect the best and hope for the best, um, what, what does it look like? What does that range look like? So we'll yeah. be... Gary, on that point, uh, I, I would um, encourage everyone that there are fact sets out there. If you just look at Asia, 
um, and you look at how Asia, there are 10 weeks ahead of us. Um, so if you look at that and how they are progressing through, uh, it's informing the Asian investors on how to invest in the U.S. And so that they're taking that as a metric. We should take that as a metric. You might conclude that we will be outside that range, time frame, or inside that time range for a variety of reasons. And then I would focus a lot on Germany because they are the first westernized nation to go locked down and then open up. So it's we're not without a fact set to start with in terms of timing and to think about how that may be uh, applicable to our circumstances in the U.S. Yeah. Of course, each each country, each uh, city, for that matter, each neighborhood, for that matter, will uh, will, will experience different uh, outcomes if they're behaving. And uh, yep. so, let's jump into it. Uh, for the benefit of our audience, would you mind giving us the elevator uh, version of uh, the overview of your organization, what you do, how you do it, where you do it? Oh sure. So uh, very very quickly, because Gotti's kept me to a very short. Uh, answer point, which I really respect, Gotti, so thank you. So very quickly, HFF was a separately publicly traded uh, company until um, July of 2019 when we merged our business uh, into JLL, which has been an incredible uh, uh, outcome for uh, for sure for HFF, and the combination's been quite powerful. Prior to that, we were a separately traded public company. Um, where myself and other partners started almost 30 years ago, and we were exclusively in the real estate capital markets and immediate business. Um, we had bought or sold our company a couple of times and taken it public uh, throughout that 30 year time frame. So we had a little experience uh, of, through cycles and other things, both as a private and as a public company. And today with JLL, we, you know, we're in the uh, globally in Asia and Europe, leading capital markets intermediary and uh, the largest intermediary from a capital market uh, perspective in the world. We also have a large corporate services business, so I think occupiers are roughly five billion feet, and also manage and lease, uh, uh, manage and man project management, and property management, and leasing, tenant rep, and agency leasing are huge businesses. So the amount of information that we've been able to have access to as a result of this merger is extensive. I, I, I can only imagine. Order of magnitude, how, ma how much uh, real estate uh, capital have you touched between lending and agency work and equity raise and all that stuff in, let's say, 2019? Yeah, um, you know, 2019, uh, 270 billion, um, plus or minus. In the US, that's. Roughly 175 billion. So globally, call it 270 or so, and in the U.S., 175 billion. Well, that should a billion to a day. That should give you a little bit of a perspective. So great, great foundation. And by the way, congratulations on a great uh, life journey and a career and an evolution of the company. Clearly, you are a fantastic leader and a, and a great uh, businessman because uh, not too many people will have accomplished what you have in, in a relatively short career. So 30 years is not that long. So well done, my friend. Um, okay. I'm just one of many members and we're a big team and we've all been together for a long time. That's one of the great things. We have long tenure with great partners. So it does lead to success when you have a solid team and it sticks together. Those will stay together, succeed together. Well done. Question number one. When um, you just described what your activities and volume uh, of uh, uh, real estate did you touch last year, what happened since the pandemic to your business? How has the pandemic affected your business, both in terms of internally and your uh, out uh, client-facing work? So um, a couple of things. One, speaking only from a capital markets perspective, obviously we're going to see transactional volumes uh, highly muted. Uh, so when things like this happen, you generally have a downturn in the transactional volume as both investors and lenders assess the situation and determine where to go. That's not a commentary about a broader JLO business, which we just had an earnings call this week, uh, but it's strictly capital markets. So that is how we're uh, affected. What we have found though over time 
uh, is we've been through several cycles together. Obviously, the team that I'm talking about, again, I'm just one person on that team, um, have been through several cycles together, and we have always emerged stronger. Uh, so what happens in these downturns is you step back and you reassess the business um, and you think about what matters and generally it's the people and our clients and you start focusing on what transactions are actually going to get done and why they're going to get done. Uh, and then you assess uh, the productivity of the organization and you always uncover things. We always think we're highly productive and efficient, but you always uncover things that, you know, maybe you weren't as efficient or as productive as you could be. So, uh, all of those things we think are uh, a part of a reassessment that probably every business goes through. And it tends to make us much, much stronger when we come out. Um, what we are doing is um, advising our clients, which was the second part of your question, I think, the strategy is how to think about life post-COVID. Because for the most part, Generally speaking, in the middle of a pandemic or any kind of great recession, you're almost deemed unintelligent if you have any optimistic views. Uh, so we always try and be quite different and counter to the prevailing thought and think about the future in terms of post-COVID. Uh, and we look to Asia and we look to other fact sets to help us solve that. So we're spending an enormous amount of time today thinking about life post-COVID and just um, as many investors have told me, and I agree with this assessment, we're going to write off the second quarter as some percentage of free rent. Uh, it just makes common sense. So everyone gets free rent in some percentage of time. We are tracking collections to the very detail, as you can imagine, given the amount of information we have. But in reality, what we're doing is taking these uh, collection data and we're looking at where in what areas geographically, what cities are proving to be more resilient and defensive in terms of where you might want to invest on a go-forward basis. And that's across the board. It's multi-housing, it's retail, it's office, et cetera. And collections are just one metric, but they're really interesting uh, to see how the, the data is coming um, to bear across the 40 top metros in the U.S. For so a lot of things like that. Um, have been the silver liners guy. What, uh, what does the data tell you so far? What are some of the predicted, uh, the early results? We have outperformers. Um, and it's interesting. Now, again, this, this situation we're in is different than the GFC where everything went down. And here we don't have everything down. We have the service industry is largely down and we have other industries that are doing really well. So we have to balance that and think through, well, you know, if you have an entertained, uh, entertainment-themed destination, like Las Vegas, just as an example, that's probably going to show uh, uh, more difficult collection data than you would see in a market like Nashville, Tennessee, uh, or uh, Dallas, Texas, or uh, 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 Washington, D.C., or others like that. So there are clear outperformers that we are seeing across the board strided by different types of real estate. So in the multi-housing business, for instance, we have a million units in a private portal from the 33 largest uh, owner-operators in the United States. It's anonymous. We don't want to benchmark anyone. We're just looking at the data. And we stride it by type A, type B, type C. And so when you look at that data, you can see, well, gosh, you know, A is performing better here, B is performing better there. It really informs an investor to think through, okay, well, where do we really want to play post-COVID? What do we think that will look like? So the other results are um, telling, it's very early days, but it's telling about the old SIC codes, if you will, about the various industries comprising these markets. And what do we think are going to be drivers in the post-COVID situation and which ones do we think have more risk? So we're spending an enormous amount of time in strategy with our clients. I look forward to comparing notes on that. And I think um, this morning we actually had a conversation uh, on a RCLCO webinar uh, and somebody asked me the question, what, you know, what kind of markets do you favor from an economic driver's point of view? Uh, and I 
I talked about the fact that there's a lot of transitions that are going on right now, and you you mentioned a lot of that. That uh, there's some fundamentals of uh, science and technology, and education, and uh, healthcare, particularly research institutions and so on, that are likely to get boosted up because of the COVID-19 and the implication uh, and the way the world is going to view these sets of issues that probably favor those 10 or 12 markets in America where those are the major drivers of the economy and in institutions that are likely or companies that are likely to uh, get much more funding or much more demand for their products and services to support that evolution. So that's a little bit of a view to the future. Uh, it'll be very interesting to see if your data corroborates that or comes up in a different direction. Always looking forward to learning, Mark. So that'll be great. Um, what I hear you telling us is that at the moment, it appears the capital markets are sort of frozen in motion, that there's a wait and see attitude from the actors. Uh, those who don't have to uh, act don't, waiting for things to calm down a bit. And there's very little, uh, act, very few actors that have to act right now. Would you agree with that characterization, or do you have a different view of the level of activity in the market? Uh, I wouldn't agree with it. So let me. It's certainly not frozen. Let, let me let me give you a snapshot of this. Number one is uh, there's plenty of liquidity. There is no lack of liquidity. The debt market has fallen out considerably over the last ten days. So let me give you a few metrics. Um, Floor rates for 10-year fixed rate money jumped from sub three to four, four and a half during the peak of the COVID. Over the last 10 days, uh, they're back to three, three and a half. And over the last five business days, we are apping transactions sub three. So generally speaking, in the debt markets, we are nearing pre-COVID pricing in many instances, with the caveat being well-located, stabilized, low leverage transactions. Plenty of capital available with higher leverage, pricing just changes as you would expect as the risk increases. We've had several lenders of late call us back that have missed out on some deals over the last two weeks and go, geez, you know, we're back on the front foot here. Uh, can you help us out? Uh, and the answer is they're, they're already gone. So those transactions are gone. So the last four weeks, plus or minus, we've done 10 billion of closings and we've backed up another 10 billion. It's still off the pace of our pre-COVID activity substantially, but there's activity. Uh, and we're beginning to see that happen across the board. So on the debt front, that's what we're seeing. We've done a couple of large deals. So think of billion dollar facilities for some state plans. Uh, lately, we're We've done it with some insurance companies, which played through the COVID, and in a couple of instances, the money center banks, which we had syndicated, backed away during COVID, which is understandable. Uh, they then have come back over the last week and re-upped at essentially pre-COVID pricing. So the debt markets are generally going to determine the pace of play of equity. So that's a good metric to take a look at. On the equity front, um, we're beginning to see Initially, we, we saw only uh, trades with listed companies taking place uh, and or uh, buying an enormous amount of debt. Uh, so that was the predominance of the equity activity during the initial onset of the COVID uh, situation. Lately, what we have seen is we have seen a move toward uh, more investment sale transactions getting done in the COVID environment. Uh, particularly in the multi-housing and the industrial sectors, although we have some office situations as well that have occurred. So we do have a subset of uh, in-COVID pricing uh, current. Uh, and then long-dated WALT, so anything uh, with a defensive tenant with a long-dated lease uh, is in high demand. And in many cases, depending upon the underlying credit of that lease and the location and type of asset we're trading it at better than pre-COVID pricing, which is forming an opinion that is consistent with what we're hearing with a lot of investors that they believe post-COVID we're going to be in a lower interest rate environment for longer. Whether that's true or not, don't know, but certainly the actions 
in both the debt market, where lenders are getting on the front foot saying we want to lock in some yield, and in the long-dated Walt arena, we're beginning to see that happen. So um, that's what we're seeing predominantly on the equity front. The other major side of things is the uh, platform investor. So many investors, particularly overseas investors, particularly Asian investors, uh, are pretty keen to team up with operators or investment managers with strategic operator operating um, relationships because they don't think the opportunities are going to be available for long post-COVID. And so they are trying to figure out how is the best way to access these uh, types of transactions that are likely to come pretty quickly and you have to be able to react pretty quickly in order to take advantage of it. And so we're seeing strategic relationships with operators and platform investments uh, begin to increase as well during this time frame. So that's, that's where we are. That's very interesting. That, that definitely is a contrarian, uh, not contrarian, but different experience you're having. Obviously, it's real-time experience because you're in the middle of those transactions, uh, but it's different from what we're collecting in the intelligence and conversation with uh, folks. So I suspect your phone will ring from a lot of operators uh, and players who are saying, how are you doing that? Because we're not seeing it in our market. And that's good for your business. So, um, uh, well, if you look at, uh, Gotti, if you just take a, a page out of the multi-housing business on the financing front, yep. the agencies are very active. Um, and the insurance companies are very active. And CNBS is actually coming back. There have been two fairly significant pools priced this week better than expectations. So the, the evidence is, is fairly prolific uh, out there. Now, again, it's well-margined assets and high quality, et cetera. But again, the pricing for those assets is, is interesting. A little perspective that you might find uh, that I find Curious is that we all got used to sub three, 10 year floors um, pre COVID. But in actuality, when they moved to four, four and a half, it was such a shock to the system. People went, oh my gosh, you know, the debt market's just frozen and people really don't want to press. When in reality, we were at that same floor levels 15 months prior to COVID. Exactly. So, you know, it, it, it's been an, an interesting dynamic, but I would say that. Uh, um, uh, it's been heartening to see the credit markets react the way they have, particularly over the last 10 business days. Is, is transaction volume back to um, similar levels as to before COVID or not quite there? Oh, no, no, no. We're, again, that's what I wanted to caveat this conversation on. We're, we're doing transactional activity, as I mentioned, but the, the, the overall volumes that you'll see, and you can, look at this through RCA or anything else. I mean, they're going to be off dramatically, um, as you would expect people assessing. And this always happens during a period of time. What I'm reporting is we played through this um, at a subdued level, but we're seeing activity in transactional volume in both the debt and the investment sale and equity, frankly, to be built situation beginning to increase uh, measurably each week. And that's a good thing. Measurably meaning it's going to be quite some time before we get back to normality in transaction flows. It, 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 will, it, will, it will be 2021 before that happens. Uh, so it sounds like these are transactions that are capitalized in a, um, in a fully leveraged way, meaning that there's third party equity, there's third party debt, and there's sponsor equity. This is not uh, a well capitalized player just looking for financing for a deal. It's a uh, uh, raising capital more traditionally. Yes. Yeah. Very interesting. Well, good. Good to know. Well, we'll uh, we'll, we'll watch that and, and look for more uh, information. So, looking back now over the last thirty or so days, uh, what has surprised you? What what has turned out to be very different from what you expected uh, at the beginning of April? You know, I think what has surprised me. Um, is the creativity and resilience of our industry. Uh, you have seen a lot of changes happen very, very quickly and a lot of uh, adaptation to this environment. Uh, so that has been heartening and it's been really, really good to see and somewhat surprising. I think another thing is being able to connect so easily via technology 
and being able to uh, continue very strong relationships that we have developed over these years, uh, but be able to continue to keep those relationships going. So we'll call it relational share as we as we go through this crisis, but also being able to keep your people uh, engaged in the activity has been really interesting uh, to watch. So those have been uh, the surprising aspects. The other one I would say is most investors, and I would just say large scale investors. So we span, as you know, our business runs from the placement agent business to the equity placement business, the aid business, the debt business, the investment sales, so anything capital markets. So the investors are going to be the largest owners of capital in the world. Um, all of them responding that, look, we don't want to make the mistakes we made in Korea. We went into a bunker, we waited too long, we uh, didn't perform as we should have, and we learned some lessons. So we don't want to do that again, but we don't want to look foolish. So let's be thoughtful about how to do it the right way and where do we see things happening and what is the right time to get on the front foot, et cetera. And I think just that reality of playing both defense and offense uh, simultaneously has been a, a surprise and, and a very good one. So I want to follow up on that question, um, on that point. If I had um, two, three billion dollars of equity and I wanted to move into U.S. real estate and said, Mark, uh, help me figure out, I don't have to do it all at once, but I also don't want to look foolish by either buying too much too early or buying too little too early. So uh, how should I think about deploying two or $3 billion across the next no more than three years? Gotti, that's why they pay you the big bucks. <laughs> that is what you do. Because that is your expertise and there's no one better. So uh, that is really uh, for, for you to answer. But I, I would say but that in and of itself is, a, is an hour and a half to two hour discussion, as you all know. But um, let me tell you what I'm seeing. And maybe that's a better way to do it. Because uh, you should discount anything, I would say. Anyway. So what I'm seeing people do is you have capital that generally leads um, and is able to convince itself to take risk when others won't. Uh, they're very heavy in the hospitality and the retail space. Looking at every possible avenue of investing and thinking about the best risk-adjusted plays there because that's where transactions from a distress standpoint are likely to occur first, as most of us know. Um, and that includes the debt and includes a lot of different places that you can play there. Um, and on that note, um, when you think about transactions that have to take place, uh, most of the seller capitulation that we normally see in a recession has been deferred for at least a quarter, maybe two quarters, because of the forbearance requests that are being granted by the lending community in a very accommodating way, which is rational and thoughtful the way they're going about it, but it is having an effect on the equity market. So part of the question is, if you wanna invest over the next 90 days or 120 days, what is actually transactable? Because most sellers are going to prefer uh, if they don't have to trade. So a lot of investors are thinking about the areas where things do have to happen. So in that regard, it goes back to the listed security space and playing somewhat there. It goes back to the debt market. It goes back to industries that are having perhaps the most difficult time and trying to think about ways to play there. And on that note, we've seen a lot of corporate sell leaseback activity where companies are selling high-quality real estate, using the proceeds for liquidity in your stock buybacks, uh, and we're seeing a lot of activity in those areas, and we think that's going to continue for some time. And again, going to the platform side, got a, a lot of activity that we're involved with today is regarding that um, side of the business because it takes some time to get those papered and done, but they're preparing for when the tactical plays are available in the normal buy-sell activity when some of the forbearance starts to run off. 
So that is where most of the activity is taking place. Um, we have seen on the trades that have happened, this is just data that's probably good to know, um, signs of the long dated Walt, um, where um, buyers and sellers have come together, which again, most of the sellers are deferring uh, to trade, but where they have come together, we've seen a five to 15% discount, generally speaking from pre-COVID pricing, very limited subset of data, probably wouldn't take that to be any long-term trend. It's just sellers needing to trade and a buyer just giving the various risk profiles saying, this is what I'll do. Uh, very consistent with Asia and what we're experiencing in Asia. Uh, however, that has now been modified in Asia to five to 10%. And I don't know if you saw this, uh, Gotti, but um, there was a fairly large announcement with a large uh, trade in the office sector in Singapore uh, that we were involved with. And that is, that is stirring in the U.S. as well. So trades like that, and you'll, you'll start to see, which is why, again, I referenced Asia as a good fact set to think about time. Yeah. How, are, how are investors particularly getting comfortable with values? They trade what they trade. They're clearly making a bet that they're buying something at a certain value when NOIs may be a little bit more in flux you know, for a while. So what is that they use to be in comfort? Uh, eroding values by paying X only to find out a year later that that was um, I think it goes back to some of the information that you and I were chatting about. I think you look at defensive geographies. Uh, I think you look at collection data to help you think through what those uh, cash flows are going to look like uh, post-COVID. And I think we're beginning to see um, Perhaps we should have started here, Gaudi, but you know, when you really step back and look at what's happened, this pandemic has really just accelerated trends that already occurred. Um, so you see what was happening in retail, it's been a mass acceleration. When you see what's happening with certain geographies winning and certain geographies not winning, it's accelerated that. Um, and so I think what's happened is People are beginning to see a lot of data at this moment that gives them uh, insight on more defensive locations, so macro to micro, more defensive locations on where to invest, the types of defensive asset plays to invest in, even by sub-market. And these are where we're going to make the bet. Again, assuming that you think you're going to be in a lower interest rate environment for longer, which you may not believe and others may not believe either. I'm just hearing that from the vast majority of our investor universe. So that's that's how they're getting comfortable. Uh, and they're, they're taking some percentage rent concept, you know, during this period of time. And you have a lot of creative ideas on how to ensure that you can pay a constant return during this period of time. So there's a lot of structuring things that can happen to ensure a playthrough of uh, an extended COVID situation for longer that you can underwrite a little bit better for the right asset. So would it be fair to conclude that the transactions that are happening are ones where the certainty of the income stream for the next foreseeable future is relatively high given the credit of the tenant and therefore the buyer is just worried about maybe marking to market uh, three months down because of changing parameters, but much more comfortable that in a year or two or three, that income stream will be protected and the value therefore will more than justify itself. Yes. So anything long dated credit, it's actually trading better. Any multi-tenant property type, I'm going to specifically state industrial multi-housing office uh, or trading where they can get a view toward that consistency Maybe the only outlier here on the positive side, uh, I mean, there's several life sciences and it'll be activity and, and things along those lines. But uh, if you look at industrial, it's it's a pretty consistent thematic that onshoring is going to accelerate fairly dramatically. And so finding those, uh, those industrial projects that uh, fit the criteria of that going forward and can take advantage of that. Uh, those are trading quite well on a multi-tenant basis. So those are a little easier 
uh, to trade in today's environment versus versus multi-tenant office building. Data centers and data transmission uh, facilities. How are they doing? They're doing very well. I would think so, right? This is the time for the concept. Well, if you look at the public market, it will tell you all you need to know. They're trading in 30% plus NEV, uh, premium to NEV. So um, they're, they're doing quite well. So what other questions are your clients asking you and your colleagues? Uh, we already talked about uh, them asking you about how should I deploy my dry powder. Uh, you already discussed your work on identifying the winners and the not winners geographically asset classes, so I'm sure those are questions, but what else are they asking that um, might be interesting for all of us to be thinking about? Well, they're all asking, which is going back to a comment I made about being offense and defense learning from lessons in the past, they're all saying, hey, what, uh, not that, when I say, what are they asking me, they're really asking JLL and all much more talented people than me. So let's put that in perspective. Uh, but they're asking us, uh, where do you see the opportunity? Where should we be focusing our time? What is going to transact over the next 90 days to 120 days? Who are the best operators to give us best advice on the ground information to make those opportunities happen so we can react quickly? Um, and let's, let's go make some plays here. Um, and as you know, Gotti, Institutionally, it's hard to do that when you when they're also playing defense. So it, it's a hard, I understand that, and I think all of us do. Um, but again, if we're going to outperform and beat benchmarks, there is a risk element here. So I'm, I've been really hardened and at the thoughtful uh, front foot activity that many many institutions are taking about where do we go do something and let's go make sure we're doing it thoughtfully uh, uh, based upon what can actually transact over a period of time versus simply, well, you know, we just got to be on defense now. We're going to focus on that and when there's hard data behind us and we're certain this is over and we, get, we see some things happening, then we'll begin to think about investing. It's very different than it was in the GFC. Yeah. No question about it. We, uh, I was going to ask you about um, where do you get your information? What do you, who do you talk to? Who do you read? It sounds like a lot of it comes from your own data analytics of what you see in your portfolio. Uh, aside from that, what, what else is there that you uh, would recommend to our audience here to uh, track, watch, read, besides JLL's publication? Uh, well, you're right. We get most of our information internally because it's, it's, there's a lot of data. Uh, one of the attractivenesses, uh, one of the attractive uh, elements of the merger of getting in with JLL is they have such a robust research team, roughly 600 people. Uh, so the amount of information that we have internally is very, very good. Where do we get it? We get it from smart people like you. Got it. Um, we talk to our clients uh, and we reach out to the largest owner operators, uh, the largest investors, uh, and we listen to everyone's different perspectives and it's just fascinating. So aside from the real data that we get, uh, which sometimes lags because we're getting the data as we're doing transactions and it's, we think it's real time, but when we really want to hear forward thinking uh, data, we come to you and we, we come to our largest clients and investors because they're generally uh, informing us of what they want to do and where they want to go and when we go effective for them. From your interaction with clients and others and observations about the industry, who do you consider to be the, the groups to watch? Those that do things more interesting, more creative, uh, cutting edge? In addition to JLL? Um, Boy, that would sound self-serving. Um, and if I tell you any client, then I'm going to make every other client mad in, in the universe. So let, let me just uh, say, I, I, there, if we all step back and we look at uh, investors that have outperformed over time, we all know who they are. Um, and I think if you look at their methodologies and how they go about it, 
what I was just stating about being on the front foot when it's really hard to do, that's what they do. Um, and so rather than singling anyone out, I would just, we all know who those institutions are. Not the one-hit wonders who did a, a great one year or two years, but over time. And there are five or six uh, that have really consistently outperformed regardless of the cycle over time. And their methodologies are actually always pretty similar. So I, I, I would study those uh, and I'm not dodging the, I guess I am dodging. Yes, you are. <laughs> I, I would just say that, um, I mean, there are clearly uh, people that, uh, that are outperformers over a number of cycles, but I guess the takeaway here is the methodology is not different from one of those to the next. When do you expect JLL will be back to the transaction volume, activity volumes of uh, last year? Well, you know, that's a great question. And uh, let me hit that square on, uh, because really all of our discussions that you're having uh, with really, really great people around your industry universe, Gotti, and the people that I'm talking to, it's great to have these discussions, but in reality, it's going to be based upon how fast the economy opens. Um, none of us have the answer to that. And if we did, and you're going to take some risk and you have uh, a posturization of what, what, when, when can that happen. But that's what it's dependent upon. And for that to happen, we got to be cognizant of a couple of things. One is the virus isn't going to go away. Um, so it, it doesn't go away. So whenever we come out of lockdown, cases are going to increase. The issue is going to be, um, do we have the confidence with the data that we have that we can keep it uh, level so it doesn't outstrip the hospital's ability to handle not only the COVID patients, but to handle everyone else with everything else there? And how much confidence does the consumer have that that will take place? So as we reopen, and getting the right information and the right tone and the right data is going to determine the basic way of the economy reopening. And so as much confidence as we can instill uh, in the reaction that all of us as citizens are going to have will determine that basic play. So forecasting is a little difficult until uh, more data and more information comes out, which I'm confident that will be the case. And then as people see the data, do they absorb it appropriately? And do they properly assess the risk? And does that give them confidence to continue life and walk back to normality? I think that's the thing we all have to watch. Um, knowing that that is going to happen over time, um, you know, as the U.S. comes out in a regional role. I don't know. I'm going to put it back to you on that. What do you, what do you see? Nobody knows, really. I think the, there's a sort of a two-pronged race. On the one, on the one hand, is the desire, uh, just the human desire, of people to get back into life as normal, back to work, active socially, politically, economically, and uh, and, and resume whatever the norm, new normal looks like, uh, and that's driving us to do things sooner and uh, and faster. Uh, on the other hand. There is the missing gap, what I asked you at the very beginning. There is not enough uh, testing capability, and uh, there's certainly a treatment that is known, uh, and uh, maybe we're close to both, and maybe we're not. Uh, human nature is going to drive us to make the first choice sooner or later, and I don't know if it's going to be too soon or not. Uh, even if it is too soon, even a too soon decision to reopen and kind of get re-engaged may not be that bad as an outcome at the end if the other stream of work, which is the testing and detection and ultimately treatment, uh, match it, meets, like those two lines meet with one another, then I think the, the, the outcome is much better. So if that happens, right, if we begin to reopen as we're not planning in May and June, uh, and uh, if by sometime in June, early July, enough visibility and optics, hopefully actually presence of testing and detection, I would predict that by the end of the third quarter, we'll be 
unemployment will be down to under 20% by the end of the year. Unemployment might be down to under 10%. Our GDP will not catch up with itself, but we'll be getting close to catching up with itself as to where it left off in, in, 2020, in 2019. All that is highly speculative and clearly depends heavily upon our, our, our ability to, and if we're lucky and we don't have that, the testing and we don't have treatment, but we don't have a second wave, all the better, right? So I put that in the low likelihood, but really desirable outcome scenario. Uh, everything else, which is more likely and maybe even less likely on the other end of the spectrum, pushes that, that recovery curve into 2021 and maybe even beyond. Uh, and then so many factors will determine how much more stimulus are we going to get? Where is it going to come from? What are the consequences of that stimulus? With, not, with, with no stimulus, how many more jobs will be lost? What's going to happen on June 15th or second half of June and then again second half of July? PPP money runs out for those who got it. And now they have to make a decision. Well, maybe I held on to these people because I was hoping that the economy will pick up, but maybe I don't have enough of them to do. Do I now lay them off? Will it be a PPP3? Will it be a stimulus too? These are factors that could help soften the landing, cushion the landing, and maybe help improve uh, the move up. So you, you earlier mentioned we could draw lessons from places like Germany. Uh, and in Asia, I agree. Germany has got a great, very interesting model for supporting uh, the um, for, for eliminating unemployment, or at least limiting, if not eliminating it. Uh, I don't know that we have the political courage to do that, but that, that's a very interesting model. Uh, Canada is working now, as you know, on a uh, rent uh, protection program for landlords, so that people stay in place and burden of. Uh, Tenants to pay rent is reduced to a, maybe a quarter of what it would have been normally. Again, these are all stabilizers, but somebody's got to stroke the check, and that somebody has to have a lot of political power because the private markets aren't going to do it. It's going to be a stimulus, uh, a politically approved and induced uh, stimulus, and I don't know if it's going to happen in America or not. So I hope by the end of this year we'll be in some sort of a new normal, but have it be a healthy normal. Uh, I think it could it could wait an extra year, but then why are you interviewing me? I'm not supposed to. Aren't I supposed to be interviewing you? Like I said, I, you you asked me what do I who do I listen to for my advice? I come to the smart people, so I just walk my talk. Well, thank you. I, I would say though that one thing that uh, is important for us all to realize is there's real litigation risk uh, to opening up. So unless we get some kind of uh, reform uh, with that, companies are going to be reluctant, uh, large companies, to get back as quickly as we would all like to simply because of uh, some of the risk that might be uh, embedded there. So I think there are a lot of things to, to work through, but first and foremost, uh, again, I'm, I'm on the hospital board because I enjoy medicine and I want the education. I think the first part is to get the confidence instilled uh, with a fact set that people can rely on. Um, and I think that's coming. So I, I think as more and more data is learned and more and more testing is achieved, uh, some results are going to be uh, affirming uh, some some thoughts and thesis that have already been gently coming out, and, and hopefully that that's the first thing we have to do as educators. We want to give them a little more confidence on what this really has been and what it will be. Um, Gotti, I just have one other question though for you on this. You're talking about uh, you know normality. When we look at Asia, you know you got 90 percent of the manufacturing capacity back. You've got uh, Pre-COVID work environment, generally back. Singapore had a lockdown again because they let in some folks and didn't quarantine them. Uh, but that's coming open again. We just announced a very large trade in, in Singapore, as I mentioned, uh, 1.2 billion. Um, uh, you have shopping uh, increasing in in Asia. Double-digit sales increases generally every week. Um, so when you look at that fact set, is that impacting your your views here in terms of 
21 in terms of what you were thinking? I mean, do you, do you run sensitivities along those lines and take that into consideration? We do, and that's what drives our belief that in the best case uh, scenario, we would be uh, back to some sort of a normal, similar trajectory. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. During this year, uh, but we're allowing for the possibility that we won't have as uh, as, as smooth a uh, road up, and we'll see how things do develop uh, in China. We know the Philippines is having the second wave now. Uh, it's actually even worse than the first one was. So, we, when we study past pandemics, uh, it is highly common to have a second wave, and I pray that we don't, and that will be terrific. Time will tell. Let me ask you an, an exit question before we leave, and I appreciate um, both your sharing your perspective so far and this uh, back and forth that we just had now. Uh, I guess I have two questions for you. Question number one is, look forward to a, a month. Beginning of June, if we were to uh, reconvene, which I hope we do, what do you think will have surprised us about me? I think collections will be better than what most people think, as they were in April. Um, Bang on the property time. Uh, I think we'll. Um, I think we'll see uh, more and more states relaxing opening requirements as they see um, people hopefully behaving in a, in a good way, and we're seeing it level off. Uh, a little bit and not to a point of overwhelming our systems. So I think I, I think what we're going to see is a little better uh, view in May in terms of collections and some activity of states maybe reopening. Um, that's what I think on the positive side. On the negative side, uh, I do think that as people get more nervous and to your point, some of the stimulus money begins to run out, particularly unemployment. Um, the nervousness is going to increase. And I, I think you'll see transactional volumes as though we were mentioning where, where pipelines are moving. But I think May and June are really going to be the tough months in terms of headlines um, because they're focused on number of cases. So as you open up, Texas is going to open up, which, as you know, I live in Texas. We're going to be back in the office next Monday uh, for certain capacities, 25% with proper distancing and all of the things you can possibly imagine to ensure safety. So as that opens up, without question, you're going to see cases rise. And so as I was speaking earlier, I think the headlines may be rising, but in reality, uh, the results, I think, of opening are going to be better than what we think, despite the headlines that we're going to see. And so my, my comment earlier was, are we going to have enough information, enough confidence for people to understand the headlines better than they do today and put it in a proper perspective in terms of what, what that really means long term? And, and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. So a little bit better performance of what we're expecting, but the headlines will be a little worse. Uh, for unemployment and in cases, and it'll be interesting to see how they intertwine. Excellent question. Um, you are a humble person and you are a humble leader, but you are the leader of your organization. You have several hundred people looking up to you for direction, for uh, future you might hold for them, and for um, some wisdom and insights. How? What? What do you? Tell them with respect to what you expect, what, what they should expect this year as team members, as employees, with respect to compensation. How, how do you help them set expectations that you feel are reasonable, fair, realistic, that will not dash their hopes, but also will not set them for failure or for disappointment at the end of the year? Well, Gotti, number one, I really appreciate your commentary about humility. Uh, it's what I strive to achieve, but I'm actually just being factual. Um, I have much smarter people, more talented people around me and have had for 30 years, which is 
uh, while I'm here today and blessed to be here. So let's just, let me set the record straight on that one. Um, in terms of the message uh, to people, um, truth is the best path. Uh, so we don't, um, credibility is very important, we think in leadership. And to maintain credibility, uh, you have to deal with people honestly and straightforwardly about situations that we're in. So the way we do it is we very transparently communicate uh, everything to our people. There is no uh, overly enthusiastic, rah, rah, let's go charge the mountain. There's plenty of that, but those are the kind of people we have. But there's also uh, a very straightforward, honest, transparent discussion about the state of the enterprise and the state of the business and what we're doing and why we're doing it and what does that mean. And I think people know that intuitively. They know when you're trying to sell them or when you're dealing with them straightforwardly and we opt for the latter. And I think people appreciate it over time. They may not want to hear certain things in situations like this, but they understand it and they respect it and they know that's what's required uh, from a leadership standpoint. And if we have to have some bad news, well, no one likes bad news. And most importantly, the people that, uh, that have to give it. Uh, so if we do have to do anything like that, I think just being straightforward about it is the, is the best, best methodology that we do. Uh, having said all that, um, we plan for the worst and hope for the best. So we actually, um, in situations like this, uh, I think you find out what really makes a person. You look at character and you look at integrity and you look at work ethic and you look at the enterprise itself and do they walk the talk? So we, most companies say it's all about the people. Well, we actually believe it and we walk it and we talk it. So in times like these, it's when you really show those qualities and as you show them and you see that you really do put people's interest first, meaning your employees' interest and your clients' interest first, it shows. And so that's why uh, we tend to go on offense much earlier in situations like this because we've already planned for situations. We don't want situations like this, but we plan for them, both financially and culturally. And so we tend to get on the front foot a little bit earlier and I think that's energizing yeah. for folks. So that's where we are now. We're really looking past this and going, what is the world going to look like? And let's go after it and, and move in that direction. Long-winded story, but I'm very passionate about culture and people. Um, it's the most important thing to me, actually, in business. So by going on offense and, uh, and, and uh, uh, foot forward, uh, you're talking about looking to the future and getting people focused on what we're going to do next, is, or, or are there other actions that are part of the, uh, going on offense early? We are, um, we're doing exactly that. Uh, Scotty, we are, we are focusing our people. This is where we're going. Um, this is what we're about. This is where we see the opportunities. There are phenomenal opportunities individually for you in these areas. This is where we need to be focused and let's go, let's go mount that charge. Let's go charge that, uh, that, that mountain. I will say this, um, and it's a silver lining that has come out of, uh, the situation. But as you know, I mentioned to you that HFF and JLL came together in July. Integration of companies culturally takes time. I mean, it, people say it doesn't, but that's not accurate. It does. Uh, and it takes years. It takes two or four years in general for those things to happen. Uh, one of the really interesting uh, silver linings out of this is the integration of our businesses, despite work from home, has probably been accelerated by two or three years. That's it's amazing. been extraordinary to witness and something that I would not have predicted for sure, but just the integration because the information sharing about demand and you know occupier mentality as well as capital markets pricing, it all flows together. And so we're all needing that information real time. And without that uh, catalyst, um, it would have 
taken the normal course of business, which we're all very busy. And so you get together in certain planned meetings, but it's been a necessity to get together much, much sooner. So that's, that's been really good. Like all of our conversations, Mark, uh, I, I never like the end because there's so much more to talk about. Yeah, I, back at you, I, I wanted to turn to the interviewer because I'd have so many questions of you, most importantly. We will do that again, I promise you. I hope you come back uh, and uh, maybe in a month or so and see what happens since then. And maybe we can do a bit more of a back and forth as opposed to uh, uh, a classic uh, interview of this type. That would be, that would be ideal for me. So. Thank you for sharing your time, your wisdom, your experiences, your knowledge. And uh, I look forward to our next uh, interaction. Be safe, be healthy for you and your family, please. Always a privilege, Gaddy. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.